Life is difficult. That's how Scott Peck begins his seminal work, The Road Less Traveled. Life is difficult, and that's true. Life is difficult regardless of how much money you have, regardless of your background, where you grew up, regardless of your personality, your IQ, your giftedness. Life is difficult, and that's true regardless of what you believe about God. It doesn't matter if you have faith in God or not. Life is difficult. I read recently about uh, a, uh, an author, blogger, podcaster that I listened to named Jonathan Charks, and he described his experience with cancer. Um, you know, this is a guy, he's in his 30s, the wife, and a one-year-old son, and he was diagnosed suddenly with a very rare and lethal form of cancer. And he felt like he had his whole life ahead of him, and then he got this diagnosis. And, this, and I was really touched by how honest he was as he wrote about it. He said this, he said, as a Christian, I felt like I was prepared for that moment. But there's nothing that can do that, that can prepare you for that. It's the long night of the soul. And then he says, he says, I wish getting through it were as simple as quoting a few Bible verses and then going to bed. But it's not. You know, there are some people who say that faith in God keeps us from getting sick. Faith in God, if you have enough faith, if you pray hard enough, then you won't suffer. Now, I don't believe that. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Men and women of faith are not immune to suffering of any kind. The rain of suffering falls on the just and the unjust alike. And as much as we may desire as men and women of faith, people who believe in God, God does not always heal us when we are sick. He does not always alleviate the suffering. Jonathan Charks, he went on in this article I read and he said, he said, I want to believe in a miracle. There have been people with stage four sarcomas whose tumors never come back and no one knows why. Some things are still beyond the knowledge of medical science. I asked my doctor, he writes, I asked my doctor if I could be one of those people and my doctor replied, I am not the one who decides those things. And then Jonathan Charks writes, I believe in a God who does. But I also know that he has chosen not to heal me. At least not yet. Faith in God does not mean that God always heals us. Now sometimes God does, but not always, often. We pray, God, would you heal? And we don't see that prayer answered, at least not in the way that we want it to be. As I heard somebody say years ago, sometimes Peter gets out of prison and sometimes John the Baptist loses his head. And both are true. Earlier this month, Jonathan Charks passed away in his struggle with cancer. So here, here's my, my question today. How does faith in God make a difference when we suffer? And we all do. Life is difficult. If faith in God does not 
keep you from experiencing suffering, and if it doesn't always fix the suffering, then what, to put it bluntly, what good does it do? I mean, how does faith in God make a difference? And if Scott Peck is right, and I think he is, that life is difficult for all of us, then that answer to that question is critically important. How does your faith in God make a difference when you suffer? If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today, Romans chapter 8. We've been exploring in this series, Hope in a Broken World, how life in Jesus, it, it makes a difference right now. I mean, this, this text we're looking at, you know, if all of Scripture is a mountain range, this is like one of the summits. What, I mean, it's just unbelievable, these truths that we've gotten to see and explore, that we are free from condemnation because of Jesus, that now through the Spirit, we... We have access to life in peace that because of what God has done through Christ and the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, we now have the spirit of adoption. And, and, and by the Holy Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the kind of relationship we have with God. And the Apostle Paul, he, he continues on exploring the implications of our relationship with God through Christ and the spirit who dwells in us. And this is what he says. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. When we are adopted into the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus, everything that is Christ's becomes ours. We are co-heirs. The most wealthy person today on the planet is Elon Musk, $254 billion, which means he probably is going to make more in interest during this sermon than I'll ever make in my life and many of us in the room today. He's pretty wealthy. But Elon Musk, anybody you're going to you know, put in this category, their wealth pales in comparison to Jesus. And what Jesus, listen, has inherited from the Father, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And it's as if Paul's wanting to say that Jesus Christ, because of what's happened, takes out the deed to his estate and he signs your name next to it. You are a co-heir with Christ. But there's implications. And so he goes on in the second half of this verse, and look what he says. He says, now if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, this phrase, if indeed, it's a first-class condition in Greek, which simply means you could understand this also as since he, he, he's basically saying you are a co-heir with Christ since foregone conclusion you share in his sufferings and also in his glory so our status as co-heirs with with Christ are linked to two inevitable realities suffering 
and glory. And the suffering here that, that Paul is referencing, it includes suffering directly for our faith in Jesus, being persecuted. But it also includes the full range of human suffering, our present sufferings, as he'll say in the next verse. In other words, the sufferings we have in this present age. And so here's what this is teaching us. And again, this is, you're not going to see this on many coffee cups in a Christian bookstore. Suffering is an unavoidable experience for the child of God. That if you are in the family of God, you will suffer. Uh, the movie Princess Bride, one of my favorites, classic, classic movie. The very beginning, when Wesley rescues Princess Buttercup, she doesn't know who he is, right? He's wearing black, she res- he, he rescues her, and she is telling Wesley about her, her, her love that was lost. This, you know, love Wesley, he was kidnapped, and she's talking to him, but she doesn't know it. And he says something snarky back to her, and she says, you mock my pain. And do you know what he says next? Some of you can hear it, because this is a movie we just memorized, you know, growing up. Life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. That's what he says. Life is pain, your highness. You know, Wesley sounds a lot like this verse. Sounds a lot like the New Testament that we will suffer. But what's also true for the child of God is not just that we'll suffer, it's that we will share in Christ's glory. And that word glory, it's the Greek word doxa, and I, I love the way one commentator described it because glory is something that's just out of the atmosphere of our ability to Comprehend it, it, What he said is glory is the unutterable, eternal, immortal, incorruptible splendor of God. That's what glory is. One day the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The splendor of God. And we will share in that. And that frames what he's about to say. Look at the next verse. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And that, that preposition, in us, it can mean either the glory is revealed in us or to us. And both are true. Are true. That, that when the glory of God, one day when it envelops all of creation, we will see, but not only see, we will experience, we will share in the splendor of God as his children. But the point that Paul is making is that is yet to come. Here's the principle. Present sufferings, future glory. There's a sequence here. Presently we suffer, but in the future there's glory. There's a, a preacher in Ohio named Glenn Wheeler. And Glenn Wheeler was preceded in death by his wife, Evelyn. And he talked about the loss of his wife and what he missed. And he, he said this, Glenn Wheeler, he said, I miss her cooking. She was such an excellent 
cook. But then he says this, he says, what I, what I liked was after a delicious meal, she would come around and she would take my plate and she would say, keep your fork, Glenn. He says, I loved to hear her say, keep your fork, Glenn, because I knew the best was yet to be. Dessert was coming. Keep your fork, Glenn. He went on to describe his experience and he said, you know, sometimes late at night when I'm lonely and I'm fighting back the tears, I just miss my wife. He says, sometimes in those moments I can hear the, the Spirit of God whisper to my heart, keep your fork, Glenn. The best is yet to be. It's almost like this passage is a resounding, for the people of God, it's a resounding, keep your fork. You know, just understand that the best is yet to be for the believer in Jesus. And there's another place in Paul's writings that says this same idea. Look at this. It says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We are destined for glory. But in the meantime, what is life characterized by here on this earth? What is life characterized? This text is going to tell us today that life here and now is characterized by groaning. By groaning. And we're going to see it borne out in this passage. Three different descriptions of groaning that happens. And we're, and we're going to look at these one at a time. So first what we see in the text is, listen, we're destined for glory. But in the meantime, the world groans. Verse 22, we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And that, that word groaning, <clears throat> it means exactly what you think it means. It means the sound your teenager makes when you say, get out of bed. It's the sound that my kids make when you say, it's time to do chores. It's the sound you make when your body hurts. It's this deep, guttural groaning. Ugh! The word literally, it's a, it's a deep inward response to suffering. This, this is a word that's used in literature in the first century to describe women who are in labor. But you have to remember in the first century how deadly that was. I mean, how many women died in childbirth? I mean, the, the pain, it was groaning. And, and it's also a word that's used to describe soldiers on the battlefield. Groaning over their injuries and over the loss of life. This is not a pretty word. This is a deep, painful word. Now, why is the creation groaning? Well, Paul says in verse 20, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, what is this talking about here? This is describing Genesis 3, where God created the world, and the world was good. But because of sin that men and women introduced into the world, all of the sudden, 
the, the whole world became subject to death and decay. And we feel it. We live in a world today with hurricanes and tsunamis and poverty and cancer and disease and broken relationships and abuse. You know, atheists will argue based on the brokenness of our world today that God can't be real. Or if God is real, then God is capricious, he's mean-minded. Because, I mean, look around, the kids get cancer in our world today. And the atheists will say, how in the world can you explain a good God in light of the brokenness that we see? But there's an assumption behind that argument. And the assumption is that this world in its current state is the world that God created and intends. And the Bible rejects that narrative. This is not the world that God created and intends. This is a world that is disrupted. It's marred by sin. And the whole world feels the effects of this. And it's not only death and decay, but it's futility. And that's what that word frustration means. The world was subjected to frustration, thorns and thistles in your work, in your relationships. Listen, you buy a new house, and then termites happen. Your car begins to leak oil, a flood happens, there's mildew, there's dry rot, your tools rust, our bodies break, our joints ache, our hair falls out, our brains eventually slow down and stop working. I was talking to one of my kids this past summer, and we were driving somewhere in a, and I was just complaining about my back. My back has really been hurting the last couple of years. It started to hurt and people, you know, who I know who are older me like buckle up, you know, it's like it's and and I was just saying, "Oh, my back hurts." <laughs> Forget what my child said. And it sounds really awful when I say this, but but this kid of mine was being funny. So just know that. Don't judge this but, but I said, my back is really hurting. And, I, and then I said, I'm getting old. And, and she, said, she said, yep, it's going to hit you hard. First, your back's going to hurt. Then you forget stuff. And then you get a disease. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, that's depressing. Wow. But she's right. I mean, is she right? Eventually, you know, Bob Hope, it's a funny quote, he, he, referring to getting older, this is what Bob Hope would say, my ankles creak, my knees crack, my ears ring, and my stomach gurgles. I'm not just getting older, I'm getting noisier. <laughs> That's what he would say. All of creation groans, and we feel it. We feel it. But, again, the hope of the gospel is that that won't last forever. When Paul says creation is waiting eagerly, literally that, that phrase describes someone who is craning forward on their tiptoes. They're leaning forward. Creation is waiting eagerly for the redemption of the children of God, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Because the brokenness of this world, it will not always be so. This world will be covered in glory. Which is incredible to think about. Think about for a moment the most beautiful sight 
that you have ever seen. A mountain, a lake, the ocean, the the most beautiful image you've ever seen. Think about that for a moment. What you were looking at is creation that is subject to death and decay. How much more beautiful will this world be when it is covered in the glory of God? You see, the beauty around you that we see, and we see it, it's a dim hint of what we're headed for. But in the meantime, this world, it groans. And not only does this world groan, look at the text. In the meantime, also, believers in Jesus groan. Not only is the world groaning, but we are groaning. It says this in verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, if you've been following along in Romans 8, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. I thought we were already adopted. Verse 15 says we have full adoption into the family of God. What does this mean that we're waiting for our adoption in verse 23? Well, the way that Paul is using the word adoption in verse 15 and 23 is different. In verse 15, he's describing our entrance into the family of God. We are fully adopted. In verse 23, he's describing the completion or the goal, the telos of that adoption which is the redemption of our bodies. We are the children of God now, completely. But we live in a broken world and we have broken bodies. And and Paul's saying one day your status as a child of God will be aligned with the reality of this world. And you won't just be a child of God, you will feel like a child of God in a new body and in a new world. That is coming. But, but in the meantime, again, what does he say? He says, believers groan. We groan inwardly as we wait for that day. This is so important, just theologically, you know, as we try to connect the dots between the Bible and our lives, because for many of us, we think that when we're suffering that something is wrong, that we've done something wrong. But if this is right, then the normal Christian experience is groaning. Ugh. That is what it's like to be a believer in Jesus. And you may think, wow, that's depressing. I think that's incredibly freeing. I mean, Jesus said it, didn't he? He said before he went to the cross to the disciples in the upper room, he said, guys, don't worry, because in this world, in me, you won't have trouble. It's not what he said. It's what I wish he said. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. 100% guaranteed you can bank on it. You will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Nothing in the Bible says Christians won't suffer. And you can try to read the Bible in such a way that makes it say that. It does not say that. In fact, the opposite is true, that because of your faith in Jesus, your commitment to Jesus, your values, you probably will suffer more. 
the normal Christian life is a life of, of groaning. And it, it's possible for many of us, I mean, I'll say it this way, it's possible to get through probably your first 30 years of life without a whole lot of groaning. And for any of you young adults in the room, I mean, it's very easy to be idealistic and to just think, you know, life is just on its way up. But the longer we live, the more we realize a lot of life is this. It's, ugh, it hurts. The difference between those of us who do believe in Jesus and those of us who do not is not whether or not we groan. The, the difference is hope. I want you to look at the next verse. Look at this. It says, For in this, we, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Five times in these two verses, hope, hope. Now, what is hope? Biblically, hope is the confident expectation that God will keep his promises. That is what hope is. And in this context, it's hope. It is the expectation that one day God will make all things new. Our world, my body, that we will be, again, covered in glory. And that helps us wait. It's what Paul says. We wait in light of it. Uh, Tim Keller has a great illustration here. He says, imagine that you have two individuals and you tell these two individuals that they have to spend the next year of their life doing menial labor by themselves inside of a room. So you take these two individuals to two identi identical rooms and you say, you're gonna spend the next year of your life working 60 hours a week, no vacation, no days off, working. Menial, tedious Labor, But then you tell them, and you're telling them separately, you, you say to one, you say, at the end of this year, you're going to receive an annual salary of $15,000. And to the other, you say, at the end of this year, you're going to receive an annual salary of $150 million. He says, what you'll find is that their experience over the next year will be vastly different. The same exact circumstances, their experience will be very different. After a month or two, the first guy is saying, I can't take this anymore. Who can do this? I'm so bored out of my mind, this is terrible, right? The second person is whistling while they work. They're saying, this isn't so bad. I'm two months in. The same circumstances. What's different is the expectation of what's coming. And the principle for us is this, that your perspective about the future absolutely shapes how you live in the present. So is this real or not? Is this true or not? Is there glory awaiting you or not? And if it is, it changes everything. You see, that's the difference between us and those who don't believe. We have hope. But not only does the world groan and we groan, look at the text, the third thing we see, and this is so powerful, is that in the meantime, the spirit within us groans as well. Verse 26 says, in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now, first, I want you to notice that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, not to avoid weakness. In other words, this text does not say, now that the Holy Spirit is here, you're going to live in strength. No, we're still weak. In fact, the Christian life is a continual experience of being weak, it seems to me. But the Holy Spirit enters into our pain and weakness with us to help us. How? By praying. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. We don't know how we ought to pray. I've prayed so many stupid prayers in my life. Haven't you? I've prayed for girls to not break up with me. I've prayed for me to get certain jobs. I've prayed for things to work out. And most of the time, not all the time, I look back and I'm like, wow, thank you, God, for protecting me. We don't know how to pray. But the Spirit intercedes not with what we want, but what, what we need. And look at verse 27. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. The Spirit prays for you. Do you know that today? And what's amazing to me, when I look at this text in, in light of the context and groaning and brokenness of the world, the Spirit does not intercede for you by making a formal request to God. How does the Spirit pray? By groaning. This is staggering to think about. We have a God that groans with his people. And what makes the Spirit of God groan in the text? Your pain and your weakness. You know that God is moved. The heart of God is moved by your groaning. Do you know that today? Listen, it's a mystery. This, this whole groaning thing and that we're in this broken world and God is good and yet we struggle. I mean, it, it's a mystery but you have to reckon with the fact. Again, to the atheist, somebody who might say, you know what, how could God allow us to be in a world with such misery? You have to reckon with the fact that our God is not a God who exempted himself from pain, but entered into pain fully in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, born in poverty, grew up his first few years as a refugee, was likely mocked and shamed for the story surrounding his birth, how his mom was pregnant before his dad and his mom were married. I mean, I know what middle school's like. Imagine what Jesus heard. As an adult, he was misunderstood, despised, rejected, tortured. That's the God that we believe in. He did not exempt himself from suffering. He entered fully into it. And that is the same movement happening with the Spirit. Do you see that in this text? The Spirit of God is moved by your pain and your groaning and, and entering into it with you. Wow. So yes, we're in a world that groans. 
Ugh. And yes, we groan. Perhaps you feel like groaning today. It's where your heart's at, you just, ugh. And yet there's a spirit, the spirit of God inside of us groans as well. So listen, today, here's what we know based on this text, that the best is yet to come. We are destined for glory, but in the meantime, we groan. And that begs the question, how do we live? How do we live now? This text is putting forward two really important ideas. And the first one is this. It's that life is painful. I love what Samuel Beckett says. He says, we live on earth and there's no cure for that. Life is painful. Wesley was right. None of us get to hover six inches above the surface of the earth. None of us get through unscathed. Doesn't matter how much you believe in Jesus. And yet, this text is telling us something else. This text is telling us this, that that God is present. That you're not on your own. That we have hope, we have a perspective of the future, and more than that, we have the presence of God now who is meeting us in our pain and in our groaning and groaning with us. Now, as believers in Jesus, here's here's the question. Which of these two ideas do we hold on to? For you today, which of these two ideas do you hold on to, especially when you're suffering? when you're hurting, when you're groaning, that life is painful or or that God is present? And the answer is, out of this text, listen, for men and women of faith, we hold them both because both are true. I heard years ago, and I think it's so true, that Christians are not starry-eyed optimists. Christians are not people who say, you know what, everything's fine. And we paint a happy face on ourselves and we just say, you know what, life is good. Because life is good. Life is also really hard and broken. So we're not starry-eyed optimists. And at the same time, this person said, you know, Christians are also, we're not muddy-eyed pessimists. Christians are not those who look at the brokenness of life and get overwhelmed and say, man, this is just terrible, because that's not all there is. There's more to the story. God is here, and if God is here, there's hope. So we're not muddy-eyed pessimists. What are Christians? Listen, because because of the the hope of the gospel, we can be wide-eyed realists. That's what Christians can be, more than anybody. Christians can look at the pain and the suffering and the brokenness of this world and can grieve and can be broken by it and can deal with life on life's terms and say, this is not okay. This hurts. And at the same time, we can not be overwhelmed by it because God is with us. We are not on our own. Life is is painful and God is present. It's just as Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble and take heart. I've overcome the world. Both are true and any spirituality that does not make room for both of these ideas, life is painful and God is present, any spirituality that cannot hold those together is not only unbiblical but useless. Because life is difficult. But we're not alone. 
One of my favorite songs by John Foreman is a song called The Cure for Pain. And I heard this years ago, and I, and I thought about it this week. This is what he says at the very beginning of the song. He says, I'm not sure why it always goes downhill, why broken cisterns never could stay filled. He's talking about the unavoidable, unavoidable realities of brokenness and suffering. You know, it, it's, it always seems to go downhill. And then he says, I've spent 10 years trying to sing these doubts away, but the water keeps on falling from my eyes. In other words, I've, I keep trying to figure out a way to not hurt in this broken world, but I can't. I can't sing it away. I can't stop crying. And then he says this, and it's kind of the theme of the song. He says, heaven knows, heaven knows I've tried to find a cure for the pain. And, and he, he basically acknowledges, I can't find one because there's not one. But then he says this. He says, oh, my Lord, to suffer like you do. It would be a lie to run away. Looking at Jesus, oh my Lord, to suffer like you do? It would be a lie to run away. See, that's it. That's it. That, that we are able to, because of God's presence in our lives and, and who he is, to not run away when we suffer. We don't run away from it. And yet, we don't get consumed by it either. We face it. And we can only get through it because God is with us. And that's the truth. <laughs> Listen, Abba, Father, your Father in heaven loves you. Your brother in Christ, Jesus Christ, your, your co-heir, he died for you and he intercedes in heaven at the right hand of the Father and the Spirit of God is in you helping you in your weakness and grief. God is with you. So we do groan, but we are not alone. And that is the re that's the only thing that can get us through. Because men and women, Scott Peck was right. Life is difficult. No way around that. But there is a way through it. And it's that God is with us. What an amazing reality. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful for a text like this. God, thank you that you, you don't whitewash uh, the brokenness and difficulties of this world. And we, you never call us to pretend that it's not so bad. And yet in the midst of the hardship and the challenges, we can live with hope and joy even and peace because you're with us, and because one day, God, you will make all things new. And so, Lord, would you help that to be a living, breathing belief in our hearts, Lord, not just something we talk about and we, we leave this room, but, Lord, help us to truly know, God, that the best is yet to come. Help that to just bear weight in our lives this week. So God, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the Spirit who intercedes in our behalf. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.